Hey, this is Dan Denver, host of The Dig. Before we get started, I want to ask you for money. The money we need to keep this going as our part-time jobs and to pay for our overhead. Over the last week, we've gotten more than 20 new supporters on Patreon. If we keep up that rate, we could have around 1,000 a year from now. And that would be amazing. So, if you've already donated, thank you. If you haven't, we have some exciting new rewards to offer. For at least $5 a month, become a fellow traveler and post questions to our guests. For at least $10, you become a party member, which means you can post questions and receive a copy of Jacobin's book, The ABCs of Socialism, mailed to your door. To donate, go to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Thanks. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. What a moment to read, or to reread, The Reactionary Mind, Conservatism from Edmund Burke to Sarah Palin, political scientist Corey Robbins' 2011 collection of essays. This is especially true if you need to disabuse friends and family of the notion that Trump is some historic degradation of conservatism's good name rather than a malignant, nasty outgrowth of a long history of violent reaction against left movements for equality. Robin offers an incisive and beautifully written guide that is both heavily theoretical and, at least as far as such things go, quite accessible. Good news. Today, Corey Robin is my guest. Robin is a professor of political science at Brooklyn College and the CUNY Graduate Center. We'll take a look back at the reactionary mind and discuss how its pre-Trumpian insights apply to a political moment that is quite different, but, upon closer inspection, still all too familiar. A new edition of The Reactionary Mind is due out in September, with a new chapter on Trump and Trumpism, a chapter on Burke and his economic theory, and a chapter on Hayek, Nietzsche, and neoliberalism. Corey Robin, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Before we get to Trump, can you reprise the thesis of the reactionary mind and explain why it pissed off some of your critics so much? Sure. Uh, the book argues that conservatism from its inception, which was sometime around the French Revolution, has always been a reactionary doctrine, and specifically what it has been a reaction against are movements of subaltern or dispossessed classes um, that are that are trying to uh, assert some agency and power on behalf of themselves. And conservatism has consistently reacted, been a reaction against those movements. Uh, but that in the course of that reaction, conservatism never simply reiterates a familiar or obvious or traditional defense of privilege, it always invents a new defense and a new argument. And in the course of uh, inventing that new argument and that new defense, it oftentimes borrows from the very movement that it is opposing. So there's a dynamic element of conservatism that changes over time, um, but its reactionary qualities are consistent across time. 
And the, the upshot of that book, I mean, there's a lot of arguments in it, was that the qualities that a lot of liberal critics of contemporary conservatism associate with a figure like, well, Trump, or before that, uh, the Tea Party, or before that, uh, Newt Gingrich and Tom DeLay and George W. Bush and the neocons, or any of these more contemporary figures, that the qualities that liberals criticize in them, namely their radicalism, their fanaticism, their populism, their um, erraticness, all those things have been present in conservatism from the very beginning. And I show through a pretty close reading of the work of Edmund Burke, who's considered the founder of conservatism, um, I show that this has been consistent across time, despite the many variations in the specifics of conservative doctrine. Um, the critics, many of whom were liberals, by the way, uh, conservative conservatives, some of them at least, were much more sympathetic to my argument. But sort of moderate and, and liberal critics were, were, hated the argument um, for a variety of reasons. But I think in, in part that the core thesis really bothered them, that there's this consistency in conservatism all across time. Because liberals, uh, and this has gotten stronger with time, um, have this odd faith or belief that somehow or another, whoever the contemporary ogre is on the right, Donald Trump, that somehow or another his predecessor was more virtuous and more more reasonable and more moderate. And so, you know, we're seeing this right as we speak with George W. Bush being rehabilitated as as some kind of, you know, patrician, prudential, reasonable voice um, that was trounced, you know, by by the likes of, of Trump. You know, I'm nearly – I'm going to be celebrating my 50th birthday this year, so I really can say that I'm old enough to remember the administration of George W. Bush with a tremendous amount of clarity. And at the time, you know, people on the left and liberals were horrified, and rightly so, by what he did, uh, not just in Iraq but on a whole range of issues. But, you know, with time, uh, he gets rehabilitated and refurbished and burnished by the very people who once so vehemently opposed him. So I think at its core, the critics of the book, they, they want to believe in this you know, reasonable conservatism, in part, and, and then I'll, I'll, I'll finish up, um, in part because I think it legitimates and allows them to affirm a kind of benign and genial and completely non-confrontational liberalism. In other words, if you can imagine that your conversation partner in politics is, you know, somewhat like yourself, uh, interested in evidence and logic and reason, then your disagreements are really, you know, matters of a seminar room, and you don't have to change much in the way of what you do or think about it. Um, and so I think, then, you know, in some ways, I think the book hit liberals particularly hard, or these kind of moderate types. Uh, because it called into question their own self-understanding of what they were doing and stood for. Yeah, there's this um, constant nostalgia for uh, the kind of Tip O'Neill, Ronald Reagan, battling it out but being buddies at the end of the day. That's liberals hold fast to. Exactly. When, you know, at the time, you know, that was a, it was a, I mean, there was so much brutality in the Reagan administration um, that many liberals, you know, really... Um, 
attacked him for. I mean, just this is one minor example. You know, you hear so much about Trump and um, his inability to tell the truth and fake news. This is all new. This is all new. When I was in high school, there was a wonderful book, very funny book by Mark Green, who ended up being running, being the public advocate for New York City and running for mayor. Uh, and it was called Ronald Reagan, The Reign of Error. Uh, and it was a catalog of every, you know, lie, uh, untruth, you know, some of which Reagan believed, some of which he didn't, nobody ever could tell. And, and it, you know, it, it, it makes Trump uh, seem like a piker in some respects, but this has all been forgotten. So, um, Turning to our contemporary ogre, um, Donald Trump, you wrote in The Reactionary Mind that conservatism is the theoretical voice of animus against the agency of the the subordinate classes. Trump um, makes for a pretty complex expression of such a voice. How do you parse his message of underclass revolt that he ran on in the campaign and his governing politics of naked oligarchic reaction? So going back to the argument of the book, um, and I, I, I touched on this very briefly about how conservatism as a mode of reaction is always borrowing from the movement that it opposes. And this is really critical because one of the things that conservatism, and this goes back to Edmund Burke and Joseph Demest, who was the sort of arch theoretician of the reaction against the French Revolution in France, one of the things that you see in their writing is a really um, supple and keen awareness and appreciation that the ruling class, the old regime, needs to appeal to the mass, and it needs to appeal to the mass in a new way that's different from the way that it traditionally relied upon the lower orders and the subaltern classes. And, and the reason for that is, is that these, what these conservatives have always been aware of is that the revolution awakened the mass in a way that it had not been politically active before, and that you can't simply stuff the genie back in the bottle. You have to find a way to give power to that mass that doesn't divest power from the ruling class itself. And this, there's a, you know, we can talk at length about how they go about doing this. Um, and one of the, one of the really um, operative ways that the right has done this and you see this, I think, most definitively in the way the slaveholders in the Old South defended their regime, uh, is through racism. Uh, racism has always been a way of conscripting the lower orders uh, into, uh, into an alliance with elites um, by giving them a taste, sometimes a very material taste, sometimes a purely symbolic taste. It varies across time, but a real taste for power. Uh, it's not egalitarian democratic power at all. What it is, is a sense that um, no matter how subordinate, no matter how low on the totem pole you are, there is always somebody beneath you whom you can dominate, and that that's what power is. And so the right has always mobilized a mass or populist base, for lack of a better word. Racism has been one of its crucial tools in that regard, although there have been others. Nationalism is another. Imperialism is another. It, you know, it varies across time. So what Trump has done in this regard is, if anything, his racism and his nativism are probably the least remarkable things about him. I mean, the very things that people most fixate as his innovations um, are 
at least from a historical perspective, just purely amplifications of what has long been there. Um, again, going back into the 19th century. Ironically, um, what I do think has been a genuine innovation on his part, namely the denunciation of plutocracy during his campaign, which people on the left and liberals paid very little attention to, but I think was, you know, got a lot of traction amongst his supporters. It didn't mean anything in practice, as we've seen, but rhetorically it was very powerful. Uh, and his position on trade, um, which again, you know, really cuts against hardcore uh, conservative orthodoxies, at least of the last half century. Those were the the real innovations in which he was trying to kind of broaden, again, the base of this conservative movement. But um, the, 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 the question with, with which you began, you know, the way he kind of speaks to the common man and all the rest of it, absolutely nothing, nothing new in that. I mean, don't forget, um, God, I can't even remember now which election this was. I think it was the 2008 election, Joe the Plumber. I mean, you may not remember this. You know, <laughs> I, I you do. Know, <laughs> somebody who had his, you know, 48 hours of fame in the Republican, you know, campaign. Uh, you know, this working class guy from Ohio, I think it was, you know, he's a plumber. You know, this is... It was after this, Obama said the, uh, the, you didn't build that thing. Was that, I think, maybe the... Or we got to spread the wealth around. It might have been after Obama said that. Oh, right, 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 right. Um, yeah, or Sarah Palin, she's a hockey mom, you know. Yeah, these, these things have always been part of the pantheon. Um, and so, again, I, I don't think Trump has been a particular innovator in that specific regard. It's just the, uh, the way he's done it in some respects um, are, are new, uh, like I said, with respect to free trade and the denunciation of plutocracy. So, yeah, it seems like what if we're going to say that something is truly innovative about Trump besides his uh, pretty distinct psychological profile, it seems like yeah. it's the merging of this white identity politics, which as you point out, is not so new, but it's merging that with this anti-plutocracy uh, discourse. Do you think that combination is is happened and has proved um, so persuasive to a significant minority of Americans because of uh, the wages of whiteness being so th thin these days, thanks to economic crisis? So, you know, that's certainly an argument um, that has been made Um I'm I I'm a little bit dubious about that because I think that the 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 waning power of the wages of whiteness really begins probably in the 1960s and the 1970s. I think it goes way way back. Um, I I I read it slightly different. I mean that read is a kind of macro socioeconomic read of of secular changes in economy in the economy, which are mirrored in what you see in places like Europe and so forth, and. I, you know, it would be silly to deny it. I don't think it accounts, though, for the specificity of this particular moment. Um, and, and, and so to understand that, I mean, we can assume what you're describing as a broad social backdrop. But I think there's something more specific and contingent, though, which is – and you see this in the history of conservatism. Remember, like from the very beginning, you're mobilizing this mass. And, and, and it could very well be that what I'm about to say is just a different way of saying what you've said. Uh, you're always mobilizing this mass, um, and at some point, the mass wants a return. It used to be that uh, 
you could give it a return. Um, and, I, and I guess in a way, maybe I am saying the same thing that you're saying with something like imperial power or something like racial domination and racial hierarchy. Uh, but that, you know, you can't eat either of those things at the end of the day. Well, um, you know, you could, you once could actually, <laughs> uh, but, but, but you can't so much anymore. And I think also in part here, um, I mean, this is what I was always struck by in the Trump campaign. You know, Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan used these racial dog whistles and it was enough to kind of mobilize this broad base. And remember, Richard Nixon got very large majority in 1972, 60%, over 60%, I believe. Ronald Reagan in his reelection got something like 58, 59%. Big majority, I mean, by American standards, big majorities. Uh, Donald Trump couldn't rely upon a dog whistle. He had to take a megaphone and state it in the rawest, crudest of terms and couldn't break the majoritarian boundary. And I think that tells you something about... um, not just the sort of waning power, you know, not just about the sort of the wages of whiteness um, not delivering as much as they perhaps once did. But I also think, you know, that there has been some progress made in this country. Um, You know, one of the reasons why we have these theories of structural racism is precisely because the kind of raw, crude animus that one could have expressed under Jim Crow is no longer, uh, you know, those kind of, that kind of display and, and status that one would feel in one's, you know, in, in the classroom, in one's neighborhood, walking down the street and so forth. You can't do that anymore. Uh, and, and I think the right at some level realizes that, um, or at least, you know, the smarter ones in the right realized there was just no going back on that. And so uh, Trump is a kind of really, I, I think, is very much a last-ditch uh, last attempt by the right to really hold on to this, you know, moment of its power that has going back to the 60s. And I think all the signs are is that it's it's waning and, and heading in the in the in a downward trajectory. Yeah, you in um, the book you cite Lee Atwater, um, and about how uh, conservatives were forced by the civil rights movement to stop saying the N word and instead use coded language about things like budget cuts um, uh, as as dog whistles instead. Um, to what extent um, have Republicans – did Republicans learn to disguise their intentions so well um, that they earnestly forgot that these were dog whistles um, and – but the voters in some way didn't and Trump is a uh, – and, and so Trump sort of like stepped into that void to say, no, this is what, this is what we mean by these policies actually? Well, that's a really good question. Uh, I'm not sure – I know the answer, to be honest with you. I mean, I think that's one very possibly uh, legitimate reading. And just to sort of clarify for listeners, um, in the book, I, you know, I argue that, um, that conservatives, you know, particularly in the 60s and 70s, you know, spoke in this coded language, which formally embraced colorblindness. Colorblindness became the mantra, um, and uh, which was, I think, true up through... I mean, probably up through Mitt Romney, maybe. I'm not, I'm not quite sure. I'd have to take a little closer look. Um, and that you could just sort of formally maintain that, that mantra of colorblindness, knowing that basically the society and the economy would do all the work of non-colorblindness for you. Um, and 
it could very well be that for the base that was just no longer enough because the the society wasn't delivering that work for you the you know the the, the basis condition was so changing so yeah, that's a very uh, plausible reading um i I'd, I'd have to think you know some more about it but yes in terms of of uh, of where trump fits into recent conservative history we've you mentioned nixon and there's a lot of echoes um in terms with Trump, in terms of his appeal to a silent majority and Spiro Agnew's attack on um, liberal intelligentsia, and that echo, those echoes were really obvious. I think during the American Carnage uh, inaugural address, uh, when Trump said that the silenced and mocked would be heard and respected. Right. Recently, in N Plus One, you wrote, you made the argument that Trump is not so much a break from this era that. Nixon pointed toward and Reagan inaugurated, but rather perhaps um, the embodiment of that era's disjunctive death throes. I certainly hope that's the case. Um, why do you think it is, or why do you think it might be? So I think there's there's two reasons for it. One that I lay out in my book is, and it's it's connected with the main thesis, which is that if conservatism, if we accept the pre- the premise that conservatism is a reactionary movement. And again, it's a reactionary movement not simply against the facts of social progress, i.e. that there are more women or black people in, in, in positions of authority and power, you know, relatively speaking, than there were before. Not merely that the country is less white. I mean, those are what I consider secular facts of progress. They were the product of struggle but they are not themselves at the current moment an enactment of a collective political democratic struggle. They are the products of that struggle. Conservatism is first and foremost a movement, a counter-movement against a movement. And its goal is to crush the movement because of what it really objects to in the movement is not simply the specificity of that movement's demands, i.e. abolition, women's rights, abortion rights, labor rights. It's not just the demands themselves. It's the very fact that those demands are being voiced by the very people who would benefit from them. In other words, conservatives see the assertion of agency and will by these subordinate classes, and it, 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 you know, it reels back in revulsion, and it wants to crush that. If we accept that as a premise, and I think there's a fair number of people, at least on the left, maybe not liberals, but the left, who would accept that as a premise. Then the question happens is, what happens, however, then, when that counter-movement, that conservatism, succeeds? And I think this is the question that the left doesn't oftentimes ponder, even though it sort of implicitly thinks that the right has succeeded, I think. Um, but I think what happens is that then it becomes the movement, the conservatism becomes it, it, the reaction becomes a, a victim of its own success. Uh, it no longer has a collective emancipatory left to oppose. It tries to conjure that left, and that's why you saw, you know, these crazy claims that Obama was a socialist. I mean, just you know, it, and palling I mean, around with terror and palling around with terrorists, uh, Bill Ayers. Bill Ayers and so forth, right? What does that tell you? What that tells you is, is that all of the orientation of conservatism is, is, is fixated on a moment in the past, and not in the conventional sense that we think of that, that they're trying to preserve the past. Its demons literally come, they have to reach back across a half century to find their demons. 
That's not a movement that is in touch with a present and a reality. That is a movement that is frozen in amber. And ironically, what has always been the hallmark, the calling card of conservatism, has been its very sharp antenna for the present moment. I mean, this is a very counterintuitive because I think, you know, one of the senses we have of conservatives is, you know, that they're living in the 1950s. That's bullshit. Uh, conservatism at its, you know, height of power, Ronald Reagan, you know, that guy had a sense of the moment, Richard Nixon, you know, they were not, you know, stuck in a previous moment, even if their ideals came, what they thought from a previous moment, they were very alive to the moment. So I think what has happened is that the conservatism succeeded overwhelmingly. The core of the movement was always going back to the 1930s. The crushing of the left uh, was the crushing of the labor movement and workers' rights. There's very little doubt that the, the conservatism has succeeded in doing that. The second cornerstone of the movement was to crush the Black Freedom Movement, um, and I think to a large degree it succeeded in doing that. I mean, if you think that what were the you know some of the core demands of the Black Freedom struggle? First and foremost, desegregation. The country is more segregated today than it was under Ronald Reagan, um, and you know both in terms of housing and school. The racial wealth gap is you know larger than it's ever been. Um, the right to vote, the other cornerstone of the movement, is very much under threat. So I think you could say, in many many respects, conservatism has succeeded at least on those two fronts. I think on the question of women's rights, which was the third, you know, bastion, you know, the third uh, prong of its assault. Uh, from the right. I think the record has been more mixed, um, but they have been able to push back things like abortion rights in many, many states, you know, very, very far. So my argument is, is that uh, the reason why conservatism seems to be in such sort of a terminal state of crisis, and I mean, as you said, I wrote this article in M plus one back in, I mean, I wrote it in December, uh, it came out in early January before Trump was inaugurated, and I got a lot of pushback um, when I said this is a very weak presidency. All the signs are uh, that the movement is in crisis. Uh, I got a lot of pushback from, from people, especially on the left, who, who thought with legitimate reason. I mean, you know, here they had won all the branches of government. It seemed like they were ready to rock and roll. Um, and but, Steve Bannon is a wizard. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maestro. Um, well, we could go on for a long time about my frustration with 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 the fixation on Bannon and his alleged wizardry. Um, but anyway, uh, I think all the signs have been there that this is this is you know in terminal crisis. And you know, we're speaking today on Friday. I don't know if the vote has happened yet on the Obamacare plan. But all signs. I, I, I refused at this point to you know, make predictions, but I think all the signs are that it's going down to a blazing defeat uh, today or tonight, or they'll just simply pull the bill. Um, you know, I think this was all writ large um, if you took the long view of what conservatism was about, uh, and that it has really been, first and foremost, the victim of its success. On health care... Um, obviously, they're in this seemingly impossible situation to uh, fulfill their their pledge, obsessive opposition mantra to repeal and replace Obamacare because they lose necessary moderate votes in the Senate if they make the bill too right wing and they fail to muster those right sufficient right wing House votes if it's not sufficiently austere. Um, 
on Twitter, you noted yesterday, I think, that uh, the idea that what the GOP is suffering from now is a tension between two factions overlooks the fact that there were always two factions, if not more. In fact, the tension or distance between moderate and radical factions of the GOP used to be greater. What needs to be explained is why this tension is such a disaster now when they have total control of the elected branches of federal government. Can you can you unpack why this these tensions seem so irreconcilable when, as you point out, they're they're by no means new? Sure. Um, you know, just one thing to quickly point out, just because, again, um, people might not remember, but, you know, I grew up in New York State. My senator for much of my youth until 1980 was Jacob Javits, who was a Republican, a very liberal Republican. Uh, you had in Connecticut Lowell Weicker, uh, another very liberal Republican uh, senator. In Maryland, you had Charles Mathias, uh, Chuck Mathias. In Oregon, you had Robert Packwood. You know, you had a whole series of, you know, fairly liberal Republican and not just senators, but congressmen uh, throughout much of the 20th century. Um, there's a lot of complicated reasons for that. Um, but there was a really very sharp divide within the GOP that makes whatever divide. I mean, when I hear people talk about, you know, the moderates in the Republican Party today, Lisa Murkowski, daughter of Ted Murkowski, who was part of the original very hard new right elected, um, I believe it was in 1980 in the wave of election of, of Ronald Reagan, along with people like Orrin Hatch. Hatch might have been elected in 78, um, you know. Uh, Alan Simpson, another hard, hard right guy who, you know, really gave it to Anita Hill in 1992. Um, just this week is in the New York Times calling for the, the, uh, the GOP to recognize LGBT rights. I mean, the whole, the whole spectrum is so shifted. It's, it's kind of crazy. But my point is, is that, you know, these moderates today are really, um, you know, they would at, at any other time have been thought of as, as very hard right. Now, to just sort of get to your, to your question, why is it so hard to reconcile these, you know, let's say, uber ultra hard right with just ultra hard right types? Um, what, why, you know, why, given their closeness to each other, is it so hard? And I think it has everything to do with what happens to a movement when it's in its ascendancy. The conservative movement, you know, as I said, you know, got started in the 30s. I mean, it goes back to the French Revolution, but the, the modern version in America got started in the 30s, really began picking up intellectual, ideological steam in the 1950s and the 1960s, culminating in the Goldwater campaign, which was the sort of coming out party for the, for the party. Now, something happens to movements when they're in that growing phase. This isn't peculiar to conservatism. I think the same thing applies to the left, which is the movement's leaders – the, 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 and, and the shock troops that are truly committed, they understand that they've got to build. And so what they do is they go out and they start trying to get converts and recruits. And they're forced by circumstances, in other words, to leave the, the coziness and the comfort of their little corner of ideological agreement. They have to go out into the, into the hinterlands and, and, get, and persuade people. And there's something that happens in that process, that confrontation with the other, let's say, uh, whereby conservatives and, 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 you know, really hardcore radicals, it's not that they lose their edge, far from it. They, they gain a kind of depth and they begin to understand how to package their arguments, how to reframe their arguments in such a way that they get a wider appeal. And as they get more and more recruits, 
they also have to make temporary compromises. Um, and they're willing to do that because they see we're growing. This is all, we're all walking up a mountain together. And if we have to take a temporary stop and take you know, half a loaf rather than the full loaf, all those cliches of compromise, we'll do it. Because what we know what we're doing is uh, building the base and the movement so that once we're powerful enough, we can get the whole loaf. That's the whole philosophy and the ideology, and I think there's a certain amount of truth to it. Once those movements get to the top of the mountaintop, and they've been there for a long time, so much so that they can lose an election, as the right did throughout the 1990s with Bill Clinton, and it doesn't really matter too much because the person you lose to on the other side is so much now a creature of the world you created that you can trust him or her to be a custodian of your ideas. Bill Clinton, you know, reduces the deficit. He uh, gives up, you know, he pushes NAFTA. He, you know, repeals welfare, the crime bill, all of these signature campaign uh, promises and programs of the right, Bill Clinton adapts. And something begins to happen to you when you see that happening. You get a little bit, you being the right, you get a little bit more inward. You get a little bit more focused on your own people. And those people, those shock troops and true believers that before were willing to go out and get converts, who were willing to take temporary compromises, they begin to say, wait a minute, we control everything. Why in God's name should we be giving, making compromises? Um, and you saw that with George W. Bush, with, you know, the, you know, Bush, I think, is really the apex of this moment. Uh, you know, massive tax cuts and a huge unfunded war. You know, it's exactly the kind of mistake that LBJ essentially did for, for the left. And, um, you know, really kind of maximalist exertion of power. Um, and they start fragmenting a little. And uh, we get to the point where we are today, um, where they're very removed from the majority. They're no longer in touch with popular currents. I think you could see this so clearly with the health care issue. Um, you know, I was a big critic of Obamacare, but let's, you know, one thing you have to give Obama is, particularly with the Medicaid provision, you know, it really delivered, you know, you created not just, a, you know, a lot of people who believe in health care as a right, you created a real constituency who now have health care. Um, so the world has changed around the right, and they no longer are in the habit or have the discipline, because they didn't have to, of reaching out and getting converts. Um, so they find themselves now elected, uh, and on the one hand, they have total control over the government. On the other hand, they don't have the ground troops in the sense of people who would go out and speak to other people and gain converts anymore. Uh, and it's a, it's a very dangerous situation for any movement. Um, you know, I, I, I sometimes I say this somewhat in jest, but it does remind me of kind of, you know, the militant tendency in the Labor Party uh, in Britain back in the 70s and the early 80s. Um, you know, everything is burning around you uh, and you, you have less and less access to, to ordinary people that you're speaking to. Um, and you think, well, you know, the answer is to pull even harder right, uh, which is what we're seeing now. Uh, and so I, I think it's, again, a symptom of their success, really. Uh, that's where they are now. And so this extreme uh, freedom caucus, you know, these really hard right people, you know, they're like, screw it. Why should we compromise with these other people? We don't need them. Um, or, you know, we're purists. We'll go down with the ship. 
Um, and that kind of go down with the ship philosophy sets in, uh, I think, in the late stage of, 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 you know, really any political movement, but we're seeing it particularly with the right now. Hey, hey, this is Dan once again. I'm chiming in to remind you to give us money. If you like the show, go to patreon.com. $5 a month or more makes you a fellow traveler, meaning you can pose questions to guests. $10 or more makes you a party member, entitling you to pose those questions and you receive a copy of Jacobin's book, The ABCs of Socialism. To donate, go to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com. Thanks, and now back to the show. Um, I am going to play a listener question, if that's all right. Sure. Yes, this is Christopher Henderson. You have my permission to use my name if you wish. That's fine. My question for Corey Robin is as follows. I've been a socialist for nearly 20 years and seen lots of ups and downs. I've tried to organize in a deeply conservative state like Oklahoma. I've been a member of everything from the ISO to the Socialist Party and now the DSA, and have seen organized locals in this state grow, then suddenly collapse over the last 20 years. I wasn't initially enthusiastic about the Sanders campaign. I thought it would be another percentage-like attempt to corral the left into the Democratic Party tent. It was nice to be wrong and watch the campaign grow. Heck, he won my state by 11 points. Now, for the first time in decades, socialist groups like the DSA and undoubtedly others are rapidly growing, faster than I've ever seen in my entire life. I've been excited before about potential growth opportunities and I've been wrong. But is this different? Is this the upturn we've long been waiting for? That's my question. Thank you. That's a very good question. As the caller asked, is this the left that we've been waiting for? So I want to specify, you know, I'm answering this question um, less as an expert, uh, you know, who's been studying the topic for a very long time and more as a a co uh, protagonist in this movement, because I was also uh, very excited about the Sanders campaign and uh, did my effort to support it, um, and have also been over the years active in the labor movement uh, and other movements as well. So, you know, I think the, the caller and I are on, um, you know, we each know <laughs> as much about the topic as the other. Uh, but I will say that I had been, you know, extremely heartened um, by the full range of activity uh, on the left, you know, from the Occupy movement, which, you know, had a, a shorter shelf life, I think, than many of us wanted, uh, to Black Lives Matter and the Sanders campaign. And, you know, I, I, um, I tend to be pretty ecumenical about these things. I don't like to carve up and say, this one's good, this one's bad. I see them all as part of a broad formation. Um, but I don't think there's any question uh, that, you know, that there's been a sea change in, in opinion, particularly at a generational level. Younger voters, you know, um, have, have voiced their much harsher critiques of, I mean, the, the mere fact that they're willing to use the word capitalism itself, as name it as a system, um, I, I think has been remarkable. Uh, they're, they're, the fact that the word socialism no longer has the toxicity that it had when I was, uh, I mean, you know, in high school and college and graduate school. Um, so all of those things have been to the good. Um, and the Sanders campaign, I mean, I think it was nothing short of a miracle um, that he came as far as he did. So I think those are all, those things are all true. I think 
There are, however, some major, major obstacles, you know, in addition to all the familiar ones that we know about in terms of the state, the state, uh, state hegemony, state coercion, state repression. Um, I think we really do lack organizational infrastructure on the left. Um, and here I probably, you know, do break with some people on the left who, who I think are either indifferent or hostile to uh, the idea of organizational structure. Uh, but I, you know, I come out of the, the the trade union movement. That was my introduction to the left. I don't I don't come to the left from Marxist theory or anarchist theory or any academic position. It was really the the labor movement um, that made me part of the left. And I don't I don't see how um, you you know can ever win, exercise, or even hold on to power without some real structure and organizational apparatus. Uh, I don't think the Democratic Party is that apparatus. I mean, I think if anything, not just Clinton's defeat in 2016, and I really do think the the story in November was not that Trump won, but that Clinton lost. Um, Not just that, but the mere fact that, that, that Sanders was able to get as far as he was able to shows you how hollow and weak the Democratic Party is as a structure of power, um, uh, although it's quite good at, at you know, being, uh, delivering structures of Wall Street. Um, so I think this is a huge problem on the left, and I, you know, I don't think anybody, nobody has the answer to it as far as I can see, and I, you know, I don't say that in any finger-pointing way. I, I, I think we're at one of those moments, perhaps the way you know, the Knights of Labor were back in the 1870s, where um, we have to kind of start from scratch again. Um, and the problem is we don't have a lot of time anymore, um, you know, but, you know, with global warming in particular. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm hopeful on the one hand, um, but I'm concerned at the same time. Uh, you know, I, I, think, I think the desire is out there. Um, I don't think we have an, a, a structure or an apparatus to translate that desire into will and capacity yet. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a really important point. It, it seems to me that at least the mass movement to join DSA is an indication of a desire to build that capacity and be organized, but it's not in and of its, it does not in and of itself build that capacity. Uh, and I mean, I'm thrilled to hear that it's happening in places like Oklahoma and, you know, and in in, in all those states. And, and, and what the caller said is in keeping with I, mean, I get emails from people like the caller all the time, activists who really are on the ground. I mean, this is one of the things that makes me crazy about the Clinton defenders online is they act like, you know, the Bernie people or the critics of Clinton are somehow or another, you know, these sort of, uh, you know, Brooklyn, latte swilling, ivory tower intellectuals. You know, it's just true of someone like me, fair enough. But there are <laughs> lots of people out there on the ground, and like many of them are actually activists in the Democratic Party um, who, you know, are really doing their best to, you know, to turn it around in a fundamental way. Uh, and, you know, it's, you know, this is, this, this is something that's, that's out there, you know, but again, the question whether we have an organizational structure or apparatus to make it into something real, that's a big question. How do you assess the current um, moment on the left with other periods of left ascendancy in U.S. history? 
um, the populist movement, the various uh, moments in the early 20th century, in the Popular Front era, and then more recently, uh, the 60s and 70s um, social movements? I mean, there's lots of ways to get at that question. I mean, I'll, I'll just tell you what's sort of uppermost on my mind today. On other days, I have different angles on that. But I think the one thing that, you know, this is one of these big macro historical answers, but I'll, you know, that I, I usually hate these kind of answers. But um, I think it's, it's hard to disagree with the idea that all those movements on the left, I mean, starting with abolition, really, um, which I think was, you know, uh, if not, you know, the French Revolution, but let's start with abolition and, and, and so on. They, they presumed a broadening horizon of prospects um, that was sort of capitalist expansion itself. Um, you know, they were, uh, as much as they were critics of capitalism, some of those groups, not all of them, I think the presumption, I think capitalism was a kind of social structure that for all of its devastation and destruction, which was considerable, you know, and there was a a lot of that that drove groups like the populace and the knights and so forth. Um, uh, Steve Frazier, the historian, has a great book that I really recommend to folks called The Age of Acquiescence, where he looks at, you know, the sort of um, the horizon in which those movements arose. Um, But... But anyway, I, I think they presumed this sort of broadening expansion of possibility, which was part and parcel of capitalism itself. And I think we have been um, in an extended moment where that basic presumption really has been in decline, if not eclipse. You know, I think the idea of progress is a very difficult one. I mean, it's got all kinds of problems. I'm not an endorser of the notion, but I'm just saying as a dispassionate analyst of the rise and fall of that idea, let's say. Um, I mean, progress always had its critics amongst intellectuals and so forth, but I think the horizon um, is pretty bleak. And, you know, and and climate change is is just uh, ultimate expression of that. And I think a left in that circumstance, it's tricky. You know, I think it poses real questions. Um, and I mean, I, and I would add to that, and it might be related to that, you know, again, this is where leftists who, who get very sectarian, I think, miss the boat. What all these different left formations over the years presumed was that that politics mattered, that you could, that politics could make a difference, whatever sort it was, whether it was mobilization in the streets, riot in the streets, um, uh, electoral politics, seizing state power, revolution, you know, the whole gamut of left, the left repertoire of social movement tactics and, and electoral parties. It was the notion that if you could get political power, however you define that term, it was the lever by which you could, end, you know, make the world different and better. Um, I can't remember his name. He's a French fiction writer who had a big, great piece in The, in the Guardian um, this past weekend, Edouard... I can't remember his last name, who talked about this growing up in, in a, you know, northern industrial, you know, uh, city in France, um, northeastern city in France. Just, you know, the sense that that's what the left was about was that, you know, if you, that politics was a way of intervening in the social world and transforming it. I mean, I think the real triumph of neoliberalism at, at its deepest, most fundamental level is 
um, to have, if not uh, destroyed, to have fundamentally called that faith into question. And I think you even you see this on the left, to be honest with you. Um, you know, there's just this real sense that, uh, that politics, and again, however we define that term, and I, I don't have to pick sides in the, you know, in the big debate between social movement types and anarchists and all the rest of it, I think there's a real – you see it. I mean, you see it in a very visceral way, uh, a sense that in the end we can't make a difference. Um, and so, you know, I mean, in addition to the fact that I, I really do just think that Trump and the whole neoliberal structure is actually quite weak – I try to really emphasize that to people um, because I see the left missing a great op- – I mean an opportunity here. And I don't mean opportunity because Trump is making everybody so miserable. I mean an opportunity because they're vulnerable. They're vulnerable, and the Democratic Party is clearly not up to the task of burying them because the Democratic Party lives in symbiosis with, with that kind of ethno-nationalist right. Um, they feed off of each other. It's a parasitic, mutually parasitic relationship. Uh, and so they don't, in the end, want that hard right, ultra right, ethno nationalist formation to be destroyed. Because once it is, then the real confrontation is with neoliberalism itself. And uh, I think, you know, so I think we have an opportunity here. Uh, and, we, you know, but, but we're stymied, uh, both by our sense that, you know, somehow Trump is so powerful, although maybe after today people will realize that maybe not the case, uh, that they're so powerful and that on our side that, you know, politics really just doesn't make a difference. I mean, just one last thought about this. You know, when you read some of those new dealers, and again, the full gamut from, you know, more conservative people in the Roosevelt administration, uh, more liberal people in the Roosevelt administration, the Brain Trust, Rexford Tugwell, people like that, to the, you know, to the Communist Party that was part of that popular front formation – you had a real sense amongst them that they thought capital is so discredited and so disgraced. And not just that, but that we on the left, we know how to do this, and we have the will and the appetite to do it. And I, I, don't, I don't see that on the left today. Um, I, don't, I don't see the same kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, will to power. Uh, and I think that's, that's, that's a problem. You, you had an interesting analysis along these lines in The Reactionary Mind where you wrote, it used to be one of the great virtues of the left that it alone understood the zero-sum nature of politics, where the gains of one class necessarily entail the losses of another. But as that sense of conflict diminishes on the left, it has fallen to the right to remind voters that there are really, that there really are losers in politics and that it is they, and only they, who speak for them. It definitely seems like a major failure of establishment liberals at present is how they responded and continue to respond to Trump's mass politics, particularly in their condemnation of populism as a whole rather than right wing populism in particular and their false equation of left and right variants of populism. Um, And it seems after the election, though, that this liberal dream, liberal fantasy of, of conflict-free, technocratic, end-of-history politics that, that, that seemed so inevitable in the 1990s, it seems like it's been proven entirely irrelevant. But what you, but what you said just now is that you, that you don't see the left yet ready to step in and fill 
in that vacuum, that's that left of center vacuum, um, because it lacks a will to power. I guess I'm, I, the, I would push back and just say that um, I don't think it has enough of a will to power yet. But after the Sanders campaign, for the first time in my life, and I'm a little younger, I'm 34, but I've been involved in the left since I was maybe 15. So in those <laughs> 20 years, you know or your so, way around the block <laughs> a little, a little bit. It, it, for the first time in my life, I see a lot of people on the on the left for the first time understanding very clearly that the goal is to govern. And maybe it's not enough, and maybe it's not clear as it was for earlier socialists and communists. But but I do see it coalescing a little bit. Yeah, um, I, I think that's right. And I mean, you know, I have um, I can't express. I mean, and I don't say this in a kind of treacly sentimental way that a lot of professors my age say, which really I feel like is nails on a chalkboard. But <laughs> I, you know, my my um, you know, the appreciation I have, particularly of uh, the younger generation, I normally don't even believe in generational politics, but there's just no question in my mind, both just from what I've read and personal discussions I've had with various folks, that um, that you're right. There's, there's, there is a shift um, that's happening, um, and uh, it, it's especially marked um, the younger you go. Um, and the other, you know, the cheering thing for me um, is just how um, appropriately contemptuous I think younger people on the left are of their sort of elders and betters. Um, um, uh, you know, I feel like my generation was like the lost generation. I don't know what the fuck we were doing. <laughs> I mean, I know what we were doing. Um, uh, but, you know, so I feel like you know, when I see these older professors lecturing, you know, the young folk, it, it, it really, um, you know, bugs the crap out of me. Not because I don't, you know, I have certain areas of expertise and, you know, I, 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 you know, I don't disavow any of that. So this isn't like playing to the youth or anything. But, you know, there's just certain things where I feel like we got it really wrong. And so I don't know who the hell we think we are to be lecturing people. So anyway, that was a, a long prelude. Um, but I, I do think you're right. I think that what concerns me, um, and, and I mean, and it's just a question of time, really. You know, when the Reagan people forget the New Deal, although I think the same thing applies to the New Dealers, when the Reagan people took over, they had been preparing in the wilderness for a very long time. They had a very coherent set of ideas, a very coherent, uh, uh, maybe in retrospect, probably we think of it as more coherent, but, you know, a fairly clear set of priorities and policies and an organizational apparatus of policy apparatchiks um, who, who, who had been involved in the state um, going back for quite some time uh, and a popular movement, you know, based in the churches. Uh, they had all those things. And that didn't just arise overnight. That developed through trial and error. Now, where we may be right now on the left is the beginning of that trial and error. But let's, you know, if that's true, uh, and I'm perfectly willing to grant that, you know, the Republicans, I mean, like, let's be fair, you know, National Review was founded in 1955 uh, or 57, I can't remember. Anyway, in the mid-50s. You know, that's a long march through the wilderness um, uh, till you finally get to 1980. So, I mean, that's fine. You know, I, I, I'm, I, I don't think there's any easy, quick fixes. But, 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 you know, 
the Sanders movement was extraordinarily cheering. But I mean, I, and I've sort of said this sometimes somewhat sheepishly, part of me was afraid that if Sanders won the nomination and then won the election, um, I mean, my real fear was that he would win the nomination and lose the election. And then I thought, God, it would be like an inquisition, something that the Clinton people, I might add, mm-hmm. had been completely spared. Um, but if he won the nomination and then the election, you know, I just thought, we don't have the troops uh, to, to, to carry out the promise of that election should he win it. And I'm still not clear that we do. But I do think you're right that there's, an, there's a definite shift in the mood and the appetite. Um, but it takes time. Um, I mean, you've been involved yourself, so you know. Um, you know, people have to go through a process. They have to, you know, there's trial and error, what works, what does appeal, what doesn't appeal, you know. And, um, you know, I think I'm especially mindful of the climate change issue. Like, you know, how much time do we actually have here? I am going to play uh, one more listener question, if that's okay. Sure. Um, since the election, you've emphasized the uh, political weakness and fragmentation of both the Trump White House and the GOP at large, arguing that um, given the current trajectory of things, Republicans and Trump will be in an increasingly untenable position. Um, I think we're already seeing that with the failures of the Muslim ban in court and the problems the Trump budget and ACA repeal are facing in Congress. Um, but you've added a caveat, which is the possibility of war, um, most plausibly with Iran, but also possibly with Russia or China. I wonder if you could speak about the ways in which American conservatism approaches the issue of war and how you could see a Trump war presidency playing out. Thank you. Bye. That's a great question. Um, I mean, I should say off the, the, off the top, I'm not sure if this is exactly what the caller said, but the, the chances of war with China, I'm, I'm dubious of. Um, you know, they hold, you know, fairly large part of the American debt. Um, I can't imagine even Trump is that crazy. But, um, you know, first, let me say, you know, a big theme in the book is how attracted to warfare and violence and how central that is to the conservative, uh, the reactionary mind. I don't mean that in a psychological sense that like sort of conservatives get off on violence, though some of them clearly do. Um, I mean, it's sort of part and parcel of their ideology. Um, even the most staid voices on the right. So there's a quote in the book from Harold Macmillan, who, um, you know, was really, I can't, I, mean, I, I can't remember the, the havoc that was wreaked upon him in World War I at the front. This is the prime minister of Britain, the conservative prime minister. But he once said, you know, I like war. Any adventure is better than sitting in an office. Um, and that right there, I think, is, is emblematic of the view of violence, um, whether it's, you know, uh, domestic um, brutality or imperial warfare on the right, which is that it's an enlivening experience. It's a way to escape from, overcome the tedium and the boredom, the kind of, you know, just the, 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 the raw routineness of life, everyday life. So there's a real attraction uh, to violence on the right, and especially as a way of overcoming what they perceive as the decadence of materialistic capitalist societies, which is something we saw a lot with the neocons. And and, so, and that sort of harkens back to Teddy Roosevelt. Absolutely, uh, Teddy Roosevelt is a figure I, I discuss you know quite a bit in the book, and there's a you know there's some interesting parallels there with Roosevelt and Trump, in terms of you know not. Uh, less in terms of warfare and violence than in terms of the, uh, you know, critique of plutocracy. Um, 
So, but, but yeah, there's a, a real sense on the right. Um, and so, you know, just this parenthetical point, you know, people have raised the fascism question of Trump. And one of the things, I mean, I've pushed back about on that a lot. Uh, one of the reasons is that if you, if you were to talk about a real fascist elements on the right in recent history in America, I would say it was the neoconservatives. Um, who really embraced this idea of rejuvenating violence as a way of overcoming materialist decadence? So, and you, know, you see this in, even in figures like, you know, um, uh, happy talk guy on uh, David Brooks. Um, <laughs> you know, he was, he was from ec- now on happy talk guy. I like. <laughs> <laughs> he was ecstatic after nine eleven. Um, he really was. Uh, just the sort of sense you know, that history was alive again after, you know, the sort of, you know, he wrote this piece in Newsweek about, um, you know, the kind of, you know, our life in the 90s was all about how, you know, how fancy were your faucets and how, you know, expensive was your jacuzzi. So there's a real sense that, you know, violence and warfare are a way of overcoming the materialist decadence that a capitalist society offers. And this is something that people don't realize about the right, but, you know, it's a very powerful element. Now we come to Trump. Um, so I've always, I've said from the from the start that the the biggest thing I've always been afraid of, and I mean this is hardly a, a novel or original thought with Trump, uh, is you know some kind of warfare incident, um, you know particularly for somebody who's backed into a corner and is losing political support, bleeding support domestically. Um, there can be no way out sometimes except through violence and warfare. Now the one thing that Stops me, and that doesn't stop me, or the cap. I mean, just the the the, the wrinkle in that story. Put it that way, um, because the left oftentimes says this. You know, uh, if we had another 9/11, what would happen? And I think the problem with that analogy is it assumes a very static model of politics. That is, as if nothing has happened on the right or in the country since 9/11. Um, I, you know, if everything I'm saying about the right is true about its weaknesses and all the rest of it. That was not true of George W. Bush. Um, uh, he was, it's true he was elected with a minority of the vote, just like um, Trump. But, you know, there were people in his administration, most notably Dick Cheney and Don, Donald Rumsfeld, but he had, a, he had, they knew what they were up to. And it wasn't because they were more talented and it wasn't because they were smarter, although I think both of those things are true. Um, it was because the movement was still, there was still work to be done. Uh, there were still the massive tax cuts. Um, and there was still the, you know, let's, uh, let's fulfill Ronald Reagan's promise of a kind of genuinely imperial state. They, we had not, the country hadn't had a good war. I mean, not a good war in the sense of that the Civil War or the Second World War was a good war. I mean, like a big war. war was, wars had been too easy. So there was unfulfilled work to be done there. Um, and so the movement was much tighter and more coherent. And I just don't think that's true today. And so I was astonished because um, I've been thinking this. The other day I saw the Wall Street Journal had an editorial where they said something really important and interesting. They said, let's say that Donald Trump said that North Korea had launched a missile that had landed somewhere just you know shy of Hawaii or something like that. They said, how many people would actually believe him? And I thought, wow, um, that's not just an anti-Trump throwaway line from the Wall Street Journal. What that's really saying is, is that there's a fundamental crisis of authority when it comes to the national security, the, the head of the national security state, namely Donald Trump, um, whereby 
these incidents might not necessarily and we, you know we on the left i think make this really strange assumption that warfare is always the proving ground of the right and the right takes advantage of it and it's favorable to the right historically that has not been the case oftentimes the left has been able to take advantage of a moment of warfare um for itself so this is a long way of saying that i you know while i think anybody with a you know sanity should be worried about something like this with trump I'm not entirely sure how it would go down. Um, I mean, remember, you know, we're, we, we, for the last however many months, the CIA and the FBI and God knows who else in the national security sector and the security sectors of the national state have been doing this slow drip of information, basically saying that the man who runs the United States was put there by a foreign hostile power. Um, so, you know, this is a weird, weird moment. It could be very dangerous, but it's just not clear how it would all go down. Yeah, it's it's an entirely weird moment. And to what extent would you say that 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 Trumpism and Trumpism's conflict with the national security state is in some way a a hangover from neoconservatism and the the total chaos that they've unleashed all around the world and that we're still living with today. It seems like with the war on terror, which began in 2001 and is is still going strong, that people in the U.S. under under Bush were under this impression that they're early, at least in the early Bush administration, that there was a, a war with some sort of war aims that we would win and that was was noble and that was not a war on Islam, even though it was in many ways. But 15 years later, the wars continue. They've expanded. Home fronts have opened up in the form of terrorist attacks in in Europe and the U.S. Has this whole, the failure and endlessness, permanency even, of the war on terror, do you think that this played an important role in creating an, an advantageous environment for far-right politics and for Trump's weird blend of America first isolationism and we're going to murder suspected terrorist family members? I mean, there's no doubt that uh, what's going on with Trump, I think, has to be traced back. If I mean, you could trace it back very far, but minimally to the fallout from the war on terror. I mean, lots of things with the Bush administration, but in particular, the fallout of the war on terror and the Iraq war. And you saw this actually very early on. Um, I think after 9-11, interestingly enough, I mean, you know, the neocons had this fantasy that, um, and liberals too, by the way, I mean, Dorothy, uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin, you know, was going on, you know, with, with glee that her son graduating from Harvard was signing up for the American war machine, which, you know, these, these, I, just parenthetically, these people who, you know, would condemn, uh, you know, the uh, you know, Arab or Muslim parents who send their children off for suicide missions, you know, sitting there like with the ecstasy as their children sign up for, for the war effort. Um, I, I've never quite understood it. So it was, you know, they all thought this, um, but it was very clear uh, early on that, you know, the American people as a whole just didn't really have the stomach uh, for a genuine war like that. Um, you know, they were more than happy to, you know, support it on the cheap, borrow. Um, but remember, you know, George Bush's thing, uh, go shopping. 
You know, that was that was the way you were going to support America. And I think that was a real moment of reckoning. Um, and so there's, you know, there's been this tension. I mean, it's a longstanding one between the sort of the imperial warfare, militaristic warrior type, and the sort of market consumer entrepreneurial type. And Trump is interesting, I think, in this regard. Um, and this is something I'm going to be exploring in this chapter I'm writing for the new issue of uh, The Reactionary Mind, because uh, on the one hand, you know, he was sort of a critic of these imperial wars, sort of. Um, you know, he, he, it's always hard to get any coherent statements from him on this kind of stuff. But there's, you know, he, he sort of voiced, I think, a kind of revulsion on the right with certain parts of the, the national security state. Um, uh, and instead sees, you know, the real sphere of warrior life to be in the economy, you know, the buccaneer, this goes back to people like Carl Icahn and people like that, you know, from the eighties. Um, and so I think you see a real tension there. Um, and then on top of it, you know, I think the security apparatus was always very divided about the war on terror and the Iraq war and the question of Israel, Palestine, actually, um, I think these things have been real sources of division. So I do, I do think, you know, there's been a kind of unraveling there that, that began, um, you know, under, under George W. Bush. Let me just quickly add, and I'm actually going to have to go soon because it's my daughter's birthday party coming up today. Um, the irony of all this, um, and people forget this, is that during the 19th, I mean, this goes back to McCarthy, the McCarthy years, but let's go back to the 1970s. You know, the whole Republican establishment rode into power with Ronald Reagan on the claim with the with the help of the security bureaucracy that, you know, the Democrats and liberals um, had sold out the country to the Soviets. Um, it was a false claim. You know, there was a claim that there wasn't enough military spending, that we weren't building enough nukes, all of this kind of stuff. And the security apparatus, you know, loved Ronald Reagan. Um, and their claims were leaked to the press in the 1977. This is called Team B. It's a sort of forgotten episode in American politics. But the, the modern Republican Party really comes into its own and comes into power in 1980 um, because the existing – not because, but in part with the help of the revolt of the security establishment against a sitting Democratic president. You know, live by the sword, die by the sword. Now we're seeing that very same security establishment apparatus seemingly in revolt against uh, a sitting Republican president. Um, so there's a there's a tremendous irony there that that really needs some unpacking. Corey Robin, thanks so much. Thank you. I, I really enjoyed it. Corey Robin is a professor of political science at Brooklyn College and the CUNY Graduate Center, and a prolific author, including of the book The Reactionary Mind. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once kind of said, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting a new episode every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, engineered by Tristan Rodman, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us on iTunes or wherever it is that you get your podcasts, and subscribe. And also, please leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. 
So does spreading the word to your friends. With your help, our propaganda campaign will prove irresistible. And please find us on Patreon.com and support us with a monthly payment. Even a few bucks a month is extraordinarily helpful. In the coming weeks, we'll be talking to Nicole Ashoff about the death throes of neoliberalism and Kianga Yamada-Taylor and Matt Brunig about a whole bunch of things yet to be determined. If you're a Dig fellow traveler or party member on Patreon, please call in some questions. Mm-hmm.